How do you respond to an injustice done against you? What is your reaction to mistreatment? Okay, you're driving down the road, you're obeying the the rules of the road, you're waiting patiently to turn in line at the light, and someone swoops in and cuts you off, and you miss the chance to turn. What's your reaction? When you're working on a hard project and a coworker or a fellow student who's supposed to be helping you doesn't do anything. Okay, they're not helping at all, but they end up getting all of the credit. How do you respond? Maybe you're a hard worker who clearly deserves this upcoming promotion, but you're passed over, and it's clear to you that it's because of your religious beliefs. What is your reaction to such injustices? How are you called to walk through these kinds of suffering? We've been working our way through the letter of 1 Peter, and we're now at the portion of his letter where he's switching to deal with the specifics of how the church is to conduct herself among the Gentiles, that is the unbelieving pagan world. And these Christians who are in uh, Asia Minor uh, that Peter's writing to are undergoing various forms of suffering, and Peter's helping to put their suffering in proper perspective. Okay? He wants them to see the purpose of their suffering in God's divine plan. He's also begun explaining their duties and their obligations and their social relations to these Gentiles. Uh, they're to abstain from their former passions. Okay? They're to put away uh, the old ways, the old man, and they're to uh, walk in uh, this new and living way that they've been born again to. They're to live uh, honorable in the way uh, among the Gentiles so that these Gentiles can see their good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. They're to live as the redeemed people of God who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. And so now Peter's getting into the specifics. What does that look like? Hey, last time we looked at Peter's instructions on being subject to civil leaders, even pagan leaders, such as the emperor, all the way down to lesser magistrates like governors. And we looked at God's purpose for the magistrate in punishing evil and praising good, and how the church is to support that. Okay, one of the ways that she does good in the world is supporting just laws and just rules, uh, submitting to this God-ordained authority. Fearing and obeying God above all, but also honoring rulers, legitimate authority that God has set up. Uh, being part of the, the people of God, the new creation people that has begun in Christ's resurrection, does not mean that we disregard uh, all the order and structure of the current age. Okay? Peter's kind of parsing out what remains and what's new uh, about these obligations. And now he's turning his attention to the household, and we'll just deal with the first part of the household that we read this morning, um, and how Christians are to live within that institution. Uh, and here, Peter specifically deals in cases where uh, all members of the household may not be believers. Okay? You deal with slaves who may have masters who are not believers, or wives who 
may have husbands who are not believers. What are you supposed to do in those cases? If Peter's uh, instructing on these relationships. Uh, this is the so-called household code. Rules about roles and relationships within the household. And it's, of course, not unique to Peter. Uh, we see this in Paul's letters as well, Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians 3. Uh, Paul instructs Timothy throughout 1 Timothy in, in these various roles and in Titus 2. And so we see these kinds of instructions for husbands and wives, for children and parents, masters and slaves. And this kind of household code is, is furthermore not unique to the New Testament. Okay, we can find these kind of household codes throughout pagan literature in the ancient world, even prior, than, uh, prior to the New Testament. You see it in pagan authors like Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch and Seneca. Uh, these authors also sought to provide moral advice on proper relationships within the household. Okay, so even the pagans in Greco-Roman culture expected there to be some kind of order to the household and expected each member to follow certain rules that they deem were good for the broader society. Now, of course, Peter and Paul are not merely mimicking these uh, Greek pagan authors, but they're showing that the gospel, okay, God's triumph over sin, death, and the devil through Jesus' death and resurrection, this gospel has profound implications for all of these relationships. Christ's resurrection from the dead has changed the world, not only for individuals, but also households and institutions, relationships in the world. The gospel does not destroy the order of the household. In fact, the gospel transforms and restores the household to its proper design. Furthermore, Peter and Paul are not of course, starting from scratch here in this teaching, they're building on the wisdom of God's revelation in the Old Testament scriptures. So we see Peter and Paul both appealing to Old Testament examples uh, and to laws from the Mosaic law uh, within these household codes. The content and the structure of Peter's household code here is also subversive. Okay, the, It's different in that they're... Uh, reading these things in light of the gospel, but the way in which Peter uh, presents these codes is contrary to the cultural standards of the day. A pagan household codes would address the head of the family regarding each member's roles. Peter addresses slaves directly. He addresses women, wives directly. Okay, these uh, slaves and women who, who would have a lower social status at this time uh, they did remain members of their current household, but Peter's uh, indicating that they're now members of the household of God. Okay? They're co-heirs with the royal son in the coming inheritance. And those who occupy the lowest class and status in society have an equal standing in the kingdom as those who occupy higher status. The servant girl has the same claim to the royal inheritance in Christ as the Christian ruler. This is why Paul can say there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Peter also inverts the usual order of addressing uh, the roles of the household. Instead of going from the head of the family first and then to the wives and children and slaves, he starts with the slave. He addresses the slave first. 
Uh, and I think he does so to make a profound theological point. This is in keeping with Jesus' teaching that the last shall be first and the humble shall be exalted. But even more than that, to show that slaves, and in particular slaves who suffer injustice, exemplify in a unique way the calling of all Christians. Uh, All Christians are called to imitate and follow in the steps of Christ, Peter says, who became the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that Christ was a suffering slave, and so the slave who's suffering in this case uh, exemplifies in in a unique way the calling of all Christians. And Peter here teaches us about submitting to other kinds of authorities than the civil government. Okay. And so he's talking about instructing us in, in how to entrust ourselves to God when we uh, suffer injustice, when we suffer mistreatment for doing good. And he also teaches us about the example of Christ and his suffering and the transformation of the cross. Before we look into those things, though, I want to say uh, just a few words about slavery in the ancient world. This may strike us as odd that Peter doesn't come right out and condemn slavery. Now, why do Peter and Paul, for that matter as well, not come out and say, uh, slavery is evil, just disregard it, uh, no longer matters anymore. Okay, we, we don't see Peter and Paul doing that. They seem to be um, almost uh, you know, promoting it in a sense, at least its continuation as an institution. Well, we don't see Peter and Paul giving slavery the same kind of divinely instituted status as, say, uh, marriage or the civil magistrate. Uh, Those things are rooted in uh, creation in a unique way that slavery is not. Uh, So we see extra language kind of uh, approving of those institutions. But Peter does still see some kind of a legitimate authority here between the the master and the slave. The New Testament does condemn, along with the, the Mosaic law, this idea of enslaving or man-stealing, okay? kidnapping people to make them slaves. Uh, the Bible wholeheartedly condemns that. It's a capital punishment uh, in the law. But neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament condemn all forms of slavery. Why is that? Well, as modern Americans, we hear the word slavery and we immediately think of our recent history uh, of slavery in this country. And we, we have to be careful uh, not to read our recent American history of slavery back into the Bible's situation. Modern slavery in the New World was built, of course, on the unjust practice of of man-stealing, but it was largely based on racial discrimination. It was race-based slavery. Slavery in the ancient world, while it certainly had its share of injustices, operated quite differently. It was not race-based. Uh, In the ancient Near East, many pagan cultures certainly practice barbaric and cruel forms of slavery. Uh, But the Mosaic Law condemned Pharaoh's model of ruthless slavery. Instead of abolishing all forms of slavery, the Mosaic Law, we could say, regulated slavery. It preserved the dignity of the human being uh, to protect him or her from injustice. Slavery under the Old Covenant operated more like a kind of voluntary indentured servitude. The slaves were given the option to go out free from their masters in the seventh year of serving. Slaves also had certain personal rights and protections under the law. 
So Old Testament slavery laws uh, protected the dignity of human beings. We could say they elevated the status of slaves, and they were oriented towards freedom. Yahweh had freed his people from bondage and instructed his people to have compassion on those who were in bondage. And then when we get to the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, the situation for slaves is honestly somewhat wide-ranging. Some estimate around a third of the population in urban areas were slaves, so large numbers of the workforce are slaves. Uh, Slaves worked all kinds of jobs, though, uh, not just manual labor. We had slaves who were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, secretaries, and even sea captains. Uh, In fact, some slaves were better educated than their masters. And slavery was not always a permanent condition of life, but rather was a temporary uh, situation with a path possibly to freedom. Many slaves could eventually become Roman citizens. And now, obviously, all situations of slavery in the ancient world were not good. As Peter points out here, slaves were abused, slaves were mistreated Uh, in the pagan culture, it was acceptable to view slaves as property and thus without dignity and personal rights. Uh, It's a very different picture than the the Mosaic law. But Peter and Paul are speaking into this situation. And while they're certainly not condoning unjust practices that were prevalent, they did command uh, believers to fulfill their obligations as slaves. Paul tells slaves uh, in the church at Corinth this. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men." So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Okay, so slaves, fulfill your obligations if you have them. If you can gain your freedom, do it. Certainly don't become a slave if you can help it. But fulfill your current social obligations if you have them. And while Peter uh, addresses Christian slaves here, Paul also addresses Christian masters. Okay, so we have examples of Christian masters in the New Testament And he encourages them to be just, to be fair, remembering that they have a master in heaven who will judge them. Paul writes the letter of Philemon to a Christian master, uh, encouraging him to forgive and accept uh, this former slave who had helped Paul and had become a believer, who who had wronged this master, to forgive him and to receive him back as a brother. So the practice of slavery... Uh, in the first century was not necessarily immoral, though it was certainly not ideal. And as we see in the New Testament, like the Old Testament, the disposition is toward freedom. Uh, The logic of the gospel leads to freedom and the undoing of slavery in all forms. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Paul says. And historically, the gospel did have this kind of leavening effect on society with respect to these things. Okay, so with some of that background, let's, let's look at Peter's instruction here for slaves. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Even though these Christian slaves have been born again to a living hope, they have an inheritance 
in the kingdom. They belong to the royal priesthood. Peter says, you still need to submit to your earthly masters. This is part of your calling to do good among the Gentiles. You need to submit with all fear. Okay, this word's a little bit ambiguous here. In the immediately preceding verse, Peter told us, fear God and honor the emperor. Elsewhere in the letter, when he's talking about fear, he says, conduct yourself in all fear, and he's talking about fearing God. And I think it makes sense to see this as a similar reference to fearing God. Submit yourselves to your masters with all fear of God. Okay, you're to do this work mindful of God, he says, seeking to please God. Not only when your master is good and gentle, but also when he is unjust. In other words, having an unjust master is not an excuse to defy his authority. Submit even to the unjust master. Of course, Peter's not telling the Christian slave to sin. He's not saying obey a command to sin. When there's a conflict between the two, we always obey God rather than men. We submit to authorities with all fear of God. Okay, he makes clear that he's talking about suffering punishment, suffering injustice for doing good. He says in verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the master here is unjust or cruel because he punishes unjustly. Peter says, there's no credit if you sin and you're, you're beaten for it. Okay, that's not the kind of suffering that he's commending. If you fail to do what your boss asks you to do and he penalizes you for it, you can't say, I'm suffering for the kingdom or I'm being persecuted. No, that kind of suffering doesn't have the favor of God. But when you are doing good and when you are submitting to your master and walking in fear of God, and then your master punishes you for it, enduring that kind of suffering patiently is pleasing in God's sight. And it is a gracious thing to him. It's a favorable thing, Peter says. Peter then moves beyond the slave's instructions in particular to make a broader uh, point about Christian suffering in general, although it certainly does apply to the slave here. He says this in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, Peter calls patiently suffering injustice, okay, to this, inju suffering for doing good, uh, a calling. Those who are in union with Christ and are being conformed to his image are called to patiently endure suffering and mistreatment for doing good. And when you walk in this calling, Peter says, it's pleasing to God. We are to do good and bless even when evil is done to us. As Jesus said in our gospel lesson, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Instead of reviling in return and repaying evil, Peter goes on to tell us we're called to bless, okay, bless in response to evil, that we may obtain a blessing from the Lord. If we are going to follow Christ who suffered, we need to be prepared to suffer injustice. We're not to be surprised when the world mistreats us for walking in righteousness. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
Okay, if you are if you were of the world, Jesus says the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Peter says this is your calling. You are to do good among the Gentiles as witnesses to God's marvelous light, but you will also be hated by the world. And when you are, when you're hated and you're mistreated for doing good, you need to follow Christ's sinless example in entrusting yourself to God. All right, let me add a caveat. Okay, we're all waiting for the caveat. Are there any breaks on this thing? This text could be construed to say that Christians should tolerate all injustices done against them and do nothing about it. Okay, that is emphatically not the case. For example, if you're a wife being abused by your husband, this text does not mean you just need to simply endure patiently, wait for God to deal with it. That's all you can do. No, it's not sinful to seek legal recourse in such cases of injustice, of course. The slaves Peter is addressing here, are they, they had no legal options to deal with this kind of abuse. Uh, it was not illegal or even frowned upon for masters to mistreat their slaves, their property after all. Their only option for deliverance was simply trusting in God to right the wrong. And that's not the case for us in many situations of injustice today. Thankfully, we live in a world with access to legitimate police, uh, lawyers, juries, and judges. Uh, this, no doubt, is a product of Christian influence. We are always called to patient endurance, uh, to not return evil for evil, but that doesn't mean it's wrong to pursue legal recourse in certain scenarios of injustice. We see this in the Mosaic Law. We see provisions for these kinds of situations. If a master strikes his slave and destroys his eye or knocks out his tooth, the slave gets to go free. Uh, there are legal protections for slaves in God's word. Paul invoked his status as a Roman citizen when he had been unjustly mistreated by the officials in Philippi. So asserting uh, personal rights through legal action is not necessarily wrong or sinful or unchristian. But on the other hand, if we qualify this text to death and never leave room for faithful application of what is being commanded, then we risk rendering the text meaningless. Yes, there are times that it's good and appropriate to seek recourse when injustice is done to us, but there's also here a principle of absorbing an offense and trusting the Lord to deal with the outcome okay, and trusting the God who judges justly. Now that I've praised our legal system, let me offer a word of criticism on what I think is an excessive focus on our personal rights in our culture. We have an obsession with our rights. I read a recent statistic that estimates that more than 40 million lawsuits are filed every year in the U.S. alone. How many of those do you think are legitimate, real issues of injustice? Just Google ridiculous lawsuits and you will see the kind of stuff that people are concerned with. Uh, I read about a lady uh, that recently was suing Kraft Foods because her mac and cheese cup said, ready in three and a half minutes. 
but it did not account for time-consuming steps such as tearing off the lid. Okay. Uh, what great injustice is she seeking to rectify? And furthermore, of these 40 million lawsuits, how many of these kind of ridiculous lawsuits are filed by Christians, uh, by people who claim the cross of Christ? I recognize that most of us are not in danger of becoming the mac and cheese lady, but what other kinds of personal rights do we unnecessarily insist upon that are not far from this kind of petty thing? When your toddler spills his milk for the second time today, do you retaliate in exasperation? How dare you be a toddler? Or when your teenager inconveniences you, uh, when your spouse says that they're going to take care of something and they forget about it, when a friend or a church member makes a careless remark that rubs you the wrong way, too often we insist upon our personal rights instead of bearing with one another in love. Too often we're like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who had this great debt forgiven but turns around and demands uh, the small debt be owed to him, be paid to the penny. Peter gives us an extreme example of mistreatment. How much more should we bear with one another in these smaller matters? How many failed marriages could be saved through Christians overlooking minor offenses from one another? How many marriages could experience great unity if they didn't feel the need to keep a record of every annoyance and every irritation caused by the other spouse? What if spouses denied themselves and forgave as they have been forgiven much? How many church splits could be prevented if Christians didn't nitpick over minor issues or harbor bitterness over mistakes or missteps that have been made? Paul seems to have these kinds of trivial cases in mind when he admonishes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul goes on to say, to have lawsuits at all with one another okay, within the church is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It is pleasing to God when we patiently endure mistreatment as Christ modeled for us. Peter alludes to the suffering servant prophecy that we read from Isaiah 53 here in 1 Peter 2. Uh, more specifically to talk about Christ's example, the way in which Christ is an example for us in his death. He says this in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay, Christ did not suffer for any sin he committed. He was sinless. Christ did not suffer for any deceit, for no deceit was found in his mouth. Christ did not revile in return when he was reviled. Christ did not issue threats when he was mistreated. 
Jesus did not suffer for anything that he did wrong. He didn't deserve or earn any of the scourging he received. Christ suffered for doing good, okay, and for proclaiming the truth. When we are unjustly mistreated by the world, is our response to lash out in anger? Do you feel the need to issue threats? In the culture war, do you result to using the world's tactics when you are maligned? How did Christ respond to unjust mistreatment? What did Christ do? Okay, we know what he didn't do. What did he do? Peter says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word there is this idea of handing over, and it's ambiguous. Christ handed over to him who judges justly. Christ continued to hand the matter over to his father. We see this through the passion accounts. Jesus is handed over to the priest. He's handed over to Pilate. He's handed over to the soldiers. But Jesus isn't passive. He says, I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was not passive in his suffering. He continued to hand the matter over to his Father. He did not seek his own glory or his own vindication, but he entrusted it to the Father. He was confident in God to be the just judge. And God did vindicate him by raising him from the dead. Though he was treated as a criminal, God declared him to be the righteous one by raising him from the dead. His resurrection was a verdict from the Father that Jesus is in the right, that Jesus was not guilty. Peter says this is the pattern. Christ has left us an example so that we may follow in his steps. The word for example here refers to a tablet that children would uh, use to learn to write by tracing letters. Peter's saying that we're to trace our lives after the pattern that Jesus has left for us when we suffer injustice. We're tempted to think the way of the cross won't work. In the world's eyes, it looks like the way of losers. When we don't fight back the way that the world fights, it looks like giving up. We want to avoid the cross like Peter did. Peter pushed back on the idea of a suffering Messiah. He ran away when Christ was handed over to death. But now Peter rightly sees the cross as the paradigm for the Christian life. It's the paradigm for Christian victory. The way of the cross works because the God of the cross vindicated his son in his resurrection from the dead. The way of the cross works because the God of the cross is the God of justice who has justified us through Christ's death and will right every wrong. God cares about justice so much that he sent his only son to satisfy the penalty we owed for our injustice. Jesus looked like a fool in the eyes of the world. He looked defeated. He died a sh like a shameful criminal. Though it looked that way, his death was actually a triumph, a victory over injustice. We can hand ourselves over to the Father when we are treated unjustly, knowing that he will vindicate us, knowing that he is the God who judges justly. Do you grasp for glory or trust that God 
will vindicate you at the proper time? Do you feel the need to constantly promote yourself or promote your achievements or your children's accomplishments in order to receive praise and acclaim from others? Do you constantly have to be perceived as the one that is in the right? Jesus handed the matter over to his Father, and he calls us to follow his example. Peter goes on to show us, still using Isaiah 53 as his template, that Christ was not merely our example, but also our substitute, who brings about our transformation. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ is our example in his sinless suffering, but an example alone does us no good if we are still in our sins. Peter says that Christ suffered for you. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. That is, he died in your place. He took on the curse and punishment that you deserve. He stood condemned in our place. He did not sin, but he took our sins on himself. As Paul put it, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins were dealt with on the cross. We die to our sins through Christ's cross. Peter explains this again using the language of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Christ's wound brings about our healing. We are counted sinless because the sinless one stood in our place bearing the wrath that we deserve. He bore our sins for our forgiveness. But he also bore our sins for our transformation. He healed us, Peter says. His atoning death transforms us not only to die to sin, but to live unto righteousness. We are able to walk in righteousness, to entrust ourselves to the Father in the face of unjust mistreatment because we have been healed. It is only through this transforming power of the cross that we are able to deny ourselves and to follow Christ's example. Because our sins have been dealt with and we know that the Father will vindicate us, we don't have to fear injustice. We don't have to grasp after vindication or glory. We can bless in return for reviling and do good to those who hate us. We can love and pray for our enemies. Peter says that we have returned to the shepherd and bishop or overseer of our souls. Christ's death has brought us back. We are his sheep and the people of his pasture. We can take comfort knowing that nothing that happens to us is out of our shepherd's control. No matter what injustices we face, we can be mindful that the Lord is our shepherd. To this you have been called to trust your heavenly Father in the face of unjust suffering. And since we are in union with the one who suffered injustice on our behalf and was vindicated, we can trust that we too will be vindicated by the one who judges justly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue to worship by giving of our tithes and offerings. <clears throat>